When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to welcome everyone to episode number 22 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting in August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? I'm doing great, Tim. Back for another month of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden. I can't believe we're at episode 22 already. 50 years. fifty, And we're coming up on our anniversary next month. A two-year anniversary. Two-year anniversary. Did you think it'd be this long? Did you, did you think we'd make it this long? No, I didn't even think I'd be alive at this time. <laughs> Two years ago. <laughs> Don't say it like that. I didn't mean like that. I just mean because it's hard. Everyone says, hey, you know, do a podcast is, you know, weekly podcast or a bi-weekly podcast. After a while, life gets in the way. And this is not our primary um, job. We have families. We have other things we have to do, jobs to do. So this is our secondary thing. And, and to make time for this and to do quality stuff, it takes a little village. Yeah, it does. It certainly does. And, of course, all the work that you put into it and Richie Garcia, my goodness. I mean, the research that that guy does. Does. Each and every episode is just so appreciated and he's so into it. So, uh, yeah, it is a labor of love is what this is. You know, and of course, now I'm doing uh, not just this one, but the other two podcasts that I do. So I really am almost a full time podcaster. <laughs> That's kind of what I do. <laughs> Would you ever think back in the 90s when you're doing your show at WGBB and I was running your little board for you and taking those phone calls that we'd be together 30 years later, not on radio anymore, but now on a podcast i know i think you know you never know where life's gonna take you and people who come back into your life and you know we had a great friendship all those years ago and when i met you at gbb and and then all the wrestling stuff we uh did together and um it's been great i mean to be reacquainted with you and richie after so many years and it's like time hasn't really passed in a lot of ways I think that about good friends. You're always like, I haven't seen him in so many years. I hope things hasn't changed. And you go out to dinner or whatever, and you just find yourself not having those awkward pauses you have with people, just getting right back into things. That's exactly right. And it's kind of ironic for me that uh, I, I received a call from a, my best friend at college uh, over the past weekend. He's got health issues going on right now. And, you know, you don't want to hear 
about that stuff. And he's got Parkinson's and he's got a very horrible life. But the minute we get on the phone with each other, the jokes, the nicknames from years ago, the adventures we had together is great. And also, I mean, because I go so way back in college and started Pro Wrestling Spotlight in 1975 on the college show, I just found a cachet of about 10 shows from college. And I'm actually going to do a, a college reunion show where I kind of review some of those old college episodes with two guys that one of them I haven't even seen in 50 years. He's a program director for a country station in Charlottesville, Virginia. And my other friend who I remained close with, and he's the one that actually took me to the baseball winter meetings in 1980, where I got the job with the Mets. So we're all going to get together for the first time in 50 years and listen to pro wrestling spotlight from 50, almost 50 years ago from college. So it's like, it's just, you, you keep in touch with good people. You keep in touch with friends. And that's what we do here each and every month is we go back and time kind of, you know, you don't remember everything, but there are certain points that you remember vividly. And that's what makes this so interesting. It's like no one really has the opportunity to go back. And I say this on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast. I mean, no one really gets to go back and relive their life that's documented on tape. I was listening to some stuff yesterday, and I think I told you and Richie about it. It was this report that I did from November of 1976 at Madison Square Garden. And it was kind of like sitting there with George Napolitano and wrestling historian Tom Burke, who I worked with at Ring Magazine at the time, and hearing us talk about the card with Bruiser Brody against Bobo Brazil and Bruno versus uh, Stan Stasiak. And just reporting on every match there right at ringside was kind of cool. And then right after that, I found an interview I did with my niece who was born in 1972. So she was four years old and she's uh, she's going to be 51 now. And I hadn't heard this thing since she was four years old that I'm asking her who her favorite wrestler was. And she's like, Bruno San Martino. I'm like, so I'm going to digitize that and send that to her. So, I mean, it's just like, you know, the boxes, the tapes I have, every time I put one in a cassette player, I find just magic, really, just kind of like, oh, my God, listen to this. It's so great to go back. And and what I love about the show is we lived in different times um, going to the Garden, or I was going to the Coliseum at the time, and just different kinds of matches. I was more 80s. But to to hear about Madison Square Garden and what it was like with no ropes, meaning like there's no barricades around the ring, and how much the matches were influenced by the crowd. Uh, Going Mm -hmm. back to, you know, if they got too rowdy, they may cut it short. You never would hear that today. No, it's a whole different ballgame today, obviously. And it was kind of really interesting because I was listening to that uh, report from the garden. And and you hear there's no entrance music for anyone. You just hear the pop of the crowd when Bruno was coming into the ring. And it was just really fascinating to look back at it because things have changed so much. I mean, it's a presentation. It's not even like a sporting event anymore. It's more the music and the lights and the pyro. And then the in-ring action is nothing like anyone did back then. (laughs) It's just so different. Everything is so different. But, you know, I'm happy to be here to reminisce about what happened 50 years ago at the Garden. Well, let's go back for one quick second. We talk about you. You have two other podcasts going on right now. Uh, what's up with those? How how are you doing with those? I know it's dog days of summer, and one of the reasons I want to get on this because it is a dog days of summer. And if it's too hot and you don't have air conditioning in your house, you always have it in your car so you can drive around listening to some of these great podcasts. 
How's that? That's exactly right. I mean, the podcast that I do right now, of course, uh, on the wrestling side, it's the Pro Wrestling Spotlight. We just really covered the Southeast Asia tour I did in 1993, and we brought Kevin Sullivan on to watch for our YouTube channel and to listen to these clips that he had not heard in all these years. And it was kind of sad in a way because every video that we played was him next to Nancy, and that was kind of sad. And I, I didn't really get into that with him as far as her other than talking about the tour and you know you don't want to bring up anything especially as tragic as what happened to her uh with benoit so that was kind of cool so uh we're doing that and then we're you know by the time this comes out this show will already be out we're doing one with todd gordon about the origins of ecw and he's got his new book that's out called todd is god so uh, uh, pulled a bunch of clips from his appearances on Pro Wrestling Spotlight 30 years ago. So that's always fun. On the baseball side, every week I do uh, the baseball podcast with John Gibbons, uh, the Gibby Show. And we've had some incredible guests. I don't know week to week who he's going to pull out of his pocket as far as who's coming on next. I mean, to get an opportunity to talk to and have discussions with guys like Don Mattingly, which was to me, like, even though I was a Mets fan all my life, Mattingly was Donnie Baseball. What what a great player. He's a bench coach for the Toronto Blue Jays now. So getting to talk to him was cool. We just had Jim Palmer on, the Hall of Fame pitcher who, you know, won three World Series for the Orioles. He beat Sandy Koufax in 1966. He was the guy that gave up a few home runs in the 69 World Series, one of them to Eddie Cranepool, my favorite player of all time. And so when I asked him about that on the podcast taping, he goes, that's the only thing in my career that I want to forget. It was 1969. Uh, but he was great. And each and every week, Gibby gets, gets a guest that really just kind of I can't believe that I'm talking to these legends of baseball and current players of the Blue Jays and the manager of the Blue Jays and his former boss, Alex Anthropoulos, who runs the Braves. I mean, every week is a new adventure for me. And of course, most of it is to talk about and cover what's going on with the Blue Jays who are in the wild card hunt right now. And it's baseball season, man. And it's like uh, for me, I love it. I love doing this one because it goes way back. So I'm having uh, the time of my life uh, not leaving the house, even though the pandemic is way over. I go out to do my OMED walk every day. But to be able to work from your home and turn on a computer and turn on a microphone and do this and see you. And when we do our pre-production calls to see Richie and the three of us just kind of always chat before we talk business anyway. It's uh, it's really a very cool time in my life right now. And if you were wondering how John is talking about wrestling and baseball and everything, uh, there's a book you can buy that you wrote about your life and gets into why do you talk about baseball and why you talk about wrestling. Yeah, it's called Matt Memories, My Wild Life in Pro Wrestling, Country Music, and with the Mets. The only thing I haven't done is really start a... Uh, country music podcast about the inside of the music business and who knows maybe that's something down the road to do as well well that could be next and this podcast and a Mets podcast and, oh, I, I, I am going to do one I think in 2024 I am going to start a Mets podcast because I used to get press passes too I found all these cassettes with interviews I did with all of these amazing ball players like Daryl Strawberry his first day in the major leagues and I got a chance to interview him and Bob Murphy the legendary Mets 
cassettes announcer and Eddie Cranepool and Tom Seaver. And I have several cassettes of me interviewing players in the 80s, late 70s and 80s. So I got my first press passes uh, for baseball while I was still in college. And I was in 78, 79 on Old Timers Day and interviewing guys like Henry Aaron. And I mean, it's like all these tapes are there. It's gold. So um, that may be something that I do in 2024 to put together, a, you know, kind of an amazing Mets memories podcast. I'm looking forward to it. And and speaking of podcasts, let's go to, we keep this podcast together with a little help from our friends. And the best way to help out is Patreon, patreon.com slash John Rizzi, five bucks, get you in the door. That's a price of like one Starbucks drink a month. And you'll help it us- is bring this show to you and other great stuff on the Patreon. Like what, I know we were talking off the air. What else are you bringing to the Patreon right now, John? You talked about new stuff. Well, right now, I mean, because we focused on 30 years ago, which was the IWAS, International Wrestling All-Stars Tour that I did in Southeast Asia. So I'm putting a lot of content for patrons to take a look at up there. And also I get links sometimes from people that I find really interesting. I Someone, one of my patrons uh, sent a um, link over to something called Mr. Blassie Goes to Washington. Washington. And it was kind of this documentary on Freddie Blassie visiting Washington, D.C., him and about five escorts in a limo. It's fascinating. So that's up there. And even though it's it's viewable by anyone, I was like, well, how many of my patrons really even know about this? I, had, I didn't know about it. And I was such a Blassie mark. And uh, I put it up there for patrons. But I'm always putting stuff up. I'm always finding stuff. I had 10 uploads this past Sunday, all kinds of stuff. And uh, patrons, of course, get this podcast early. You get the Pro Wrestling Spotlight show early. You get the YouTube channel, the video version of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight early. Uh, You get the complete archives of uh, Pro Wrestling Spotlight dating back to 1989. So it's it's cool stuff. And uh, any and all patrons are welcome. And as you said, five bucks a month gets you in the door. So uh, that's uh, just something I look forward to each Sunday because I I get messages from people and these patrons love Sundays because that's when they get all the new stuff. And you know what I love about it? It's a great companion piece to this podcast because we talk about Freddie Blassie and you put Freddie Blassie letters up there. And you, you, yeah. it's a nice companion piece, especially now with all your photos coming out. When we talk about photos, we talk about matches. You can put photos up there with it to coincide with this podcast. Oh, yeah, I do. Like, we'll talk about what I'm going to put up from this episode as we get into it uh, in our discussion today. And we have some pretty cool stuff to put up there for patrons. For me, I mean, especially the newcomers that come in now, if you're joining Patreon for the first time, Patreon dot com slash John Arezzi, you will have over 300 or more pieces of content to check out. I mean, so you're going in there with a treasure chest of history. Absolutely. And, and I'm also going back to your conventions that are up there, showing things from yes. the conventions and stuff. So there's, there's more than just matches, more than just podcasts. Join the family, join the fun, patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Let's get into today's show. Besides, uh, you know, buying your tickets probably at the regular place, was there any lead up for this show? Was there any build up on television? Of course, it was a it was a rematch. It was uh, the big rematch with Morales and George Steele. And the special attraction for this show that superseded everything was Joe Lewis, the uh, legendary boxer who uh, came in to be the special guest referee for this. So that was the main thing that they were pushing was that Joe Lewis is going to be refereeing the match. So that was a big selling point. My seats sucked. 
I mean, I was at ringside, but I had the corner post diagonal to where I was sitting. So it wasn't really good for any type of photographs or even films, even though I I captured some of the matches, uh, which we'll talk about. Uh, I was getting to the point where I'm getting really close now to uh, trying to find different ways to get better seats. Because we're going to take some photos. And if we take photos, we get in the magazine. And if we get in the magazine, we're part of the business. That's correct. All right, let's go to it. New York City, Madison Square Garden, Monday night. July 23rd, 1973, bell time, 8.30, 20,629, just shy of a sellout, televised on HBO featuring Vincent J. McMahon in commentary. Match number one, Little Boy Blue and Pee Wee Adams defeat Sonny Boy Hayes and Little Louie in the best of two out of three falls match, two to one. Yes, a special attraction, uh, Little Boy Blue. I certainly would have changed that name if I was him back in the day. And it was just a typical opening special attraction little people going in the ring rolling around doing their spots Uh, nothing really special but it was a good uh, way as people were still filtering into the show to get them up and get them into the card that night and you know what no one gives them enough credit for how good of workers they were no they were very good i mean they were they were they were always good and they were always entertaining there was always a lot of comedy and, and that's what they were there for it was comedy there was nothing ever serious like no real violence at all it was just their spots and it was a lot of acrobatics a lot of cartwheels and then they'd always get the referee and roll around with him uh, there was you know chasing each other biting each other on the ass you know shit like that so i mean it was just pure entertainment you know but for someone who was really a fan of the matches it was just kind of all right this is what it is when you were at the garden uh, i remember being at the coliseum and you hear that bell ring and you're outside you're out you know maybe at a concession stand or the bathroom you go oh gotta go gotta go gotta go gotta get in there and this right. is what, this is kind of match that makes it great it brings a lot of energy to the show starting off the show right starting off the energy and starting off something that if you miss half of it, that's okay. Yeah, you hear the ring bell and the ring lights go on, and so now you knew. All right, here we go. We're getting ready to start, and um, and then you you know for for the little guys, you can't see them walking out of the dressing room because they were small. But uh, as soon as you saw them emerge and climb up the ring steps and get into the ring, here we go. It's another night of wrestling at the Garden. Fantastic match number two. Mario Soto defeated Joe Turco in fifteen minutes five seconds. Uh, 15 minutes of this match, kind of long, John? Uh, yes. Manuel Soto, of course, uh, as we talked about many times, a mainstay, especially at the Garden and a uh, middle-level guy. And Joe Turco, who didn't really wrestle a lot at Madison Square Garden. And, of course, he would be my former, my, my future tag team partner when I got into the ring in 78. So we're still four and a half years away from that. But uh, Turco was entertaining, always entertaining, because he, he had the handlebar mustache. And he always wore those traditional red tights and he was from Catania, Sicily. He was the continental nobleman and he had hand gestures that only an Italian would understand at the time. Like they call it the malocchio. You're putting the curse on someone and that basically is you put the tip of your thumb to your teeth and then you just kind of flick your wrist and it's like you're cursing someone. So that's what Turco did. But he did a little bit of a, a different spin to it as well, where he would do the malocchio, but he would lift his other arm and he'd have his elbow. And so he'd put one hand underneath his elbow and then he'd flip you off with the malocchio. So um, and that was always for me the most entertaining part of a Joe Turco match and for me (laughs) being able to actually have him as a tag team partner you know four and a half years later was very surreal because i always was entertained by turco and he was good at what he did 
you know, he was a good enhancement guy. He was a seasoned pro. So uh, I'll never say anything bad about Joe Turco. He was one of my favorite enhancement guys or jobbers or preliminary boys, as they called them back then, of all time. Match number three, Black Jack Lanza defeated El Olimpico in six minutes, 55 seconds. Here's the other side of the coin. El Olimpico, one of my worst enhancement guys. And I just thought I could never take the guy seriously with that bathing cap that, you know, that he used that was not a mask. And I never could understand why he would go back into the ring each and every month at the Garden after the rule was uh, abolished, uh, letting Mil Moskris wrestle there. But Olympico had long worn out his welcome to me. And Lanza was always, you know, season pro. It's always good to see that tall cowboy. And he was a hated heel. But it was a throwaway match. It really was. And, you know, it's just like you're not into it. You, you lose interest. Well, let's go back for one second. El Olimpico, explain for people who haven't heard. I know we've, we've mentioned it before in the podcast, but if you're just tuning in for the first time, what's with his mask and what was it, why was this happening? For decades, mask wrestlers were not allowed at Madison Square Garden. It was a rule. Uh, by the New York State Athletic Commission. So, um, and it really started because they just didn't want masked people at the garden for whatever the reason was. So, Olympico would come in like the even the Russians or even Don Jardine, who was um, the spoiler, actually took his mask off and never wrestled with a mask or a cutout mask. It was like a mask, except for that the entire front of the face was cut out. You know, you're not even covering your face. You're covering top of your head and the back of your head. And it was just ridiculous. I mean, some of the pictures I have now, and he wasn't the most handsome guy in the world either. So putting this this lid on your head it just made his ugly features stand out more. I just wanted to to tell about why the mask is a big because it's so unusual because I remember seeing shows at Shea Stadium and it was, I can't remember who was wrestling I think it was the mask superstar without a mask on so he's just a superstar mm-hmm. and I was like I didn't know but it was the athletic commission so I just want to go back and tell people yeah but why did why did Maskris get that you know get the approval and everyone else did not I mean that's still something that I don't have an answer to I wish I knew the answer to that true. That's a good one. Uh, match number four, Chief J. Strongbow defeated Mike McCord in 11 minutes, 16 seconds. Mike McCord would later on become Austin Idol. That's right. And he really, uh, his star really took off when he left the WWF and became Austin Idol. And he was a big barrel chested guy. I mean, he had an f- amazing physique. Uh, Strongbow, of course, uh, as soon as you heard him come through the dressing room entrance and it was like it was the bells that were on his uh his boots it was the big indian headdress so and he was such a fan favorite that as soon as he would emerge from the locker room area and start jogging into the ring the place would pop big time for him he was beloved. He was very beloved. I always like, used to love that jog with these dudes in a ring. Him and Terry Funk had a great jog. Terry Funk had that little jog he would do. He's coming to the ring. Yes. A little warming up. Gets in a ring. You know, hits the rope a little. Okay. All right. Now we're ready to re- pull the do, the do the pull of the rope. Check it out. Okay. Make sure it's tight. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Match number great. five. Victor Rivera defeated your guy, Freddie Blassie. Via disqualification in 9 minutes, 17 seconds. Some reports say this went 15 minutes. Mr. Blassie refused to release a chokehold on Victor Rivera and was disqualified by the referee. I was backstage before the show and did an interview with Fred and took some pictures. And it was uh, cool. And he said this was his last show uh, in the territory. He was he was leaving the territory, uh, which he did. So this was his kind of 
uh, swan song there for a while until he came back in 74 to manage uh, Nikolai Volkov. So this was kind of his second to last match. He did wrestle again at the Garden, but that was in uh, with a tag team match with Nikolai Volkov against Bruno and Strongbow, and that was in 74. But uh, this was Blassie's uh, last appearance in the run in New York. Wow. Wow. So when you were backstage talking to him, what you were, I know you were probably working on the fan club newsletter. When he said that to you, what, how, what was your reaction? You're like, oh my gosh, you're not coming back. And no, he, he just was going back and he went to Japan often. He wrestled uh, in other, you know, Los Angeles territory as well. And, but uh, this was it. And then, you know, lo and behold, about three, four months later, I got a postcard and it was a nice postcard. And he said to me that I'm going to be coming back for an extended stay. I was really excited about that, but I didn't know he was coming back as a manager. He didn't disclose that to me, but and when he did and when he showed up again as the manager of Nikolai Volkov, I was really happy, and he, of course he stayed there then for the rest of his career. I live in Los Angeles now. Um, I used to live in New York, and I could just imagine, like living here, what I love about this, the same thing back then is summer lasts all year long, so you got the beautiful sun out all the time. Going to Japan's a lot shorter, and Freddie Blassie was used to tell you coming back he'd also stop off in hawaii for two weeks so yes always something to look forward to you know that's a nice little junkie compared to no offense coming to new york going around new england in the winter or pennsylvania yeah. in the winter Ugh. yeah because blassie i mean he loved hawaii he was addicted to sunbathing getting his tan and keeping his tan and being on the beach that was what he loved and that's why in santa monica uh, where he lived out in los angeles and then hawaii and getting the opportunity to to kind of work on a stand. That's what he wanted to do. Special guy and um, just a true legend. Really, What a thrill it was and what an honor it was for me to be associated with him back then. And we have a little special for the Patreons. Yes, we do. This match, of course, uh, whether it was 15 minutes or nine minutes, whatever it was, Blassie got disqualified for choking. I mean, I did film this one. I, I, I had my 8mm camera there. And even though I think I have about a one or two minutes only of the match because I couldn't really get a good angle shooting from the seat I was in. And because Victor Rivera was uh, working with Blassie that night, he was beloved by the Puerto Rican fans there. So they would be standing up. And I think I had something like eight, ninth or tenth row. So I couldn't get a good I couldn't get a good angle. So I got what I got and patrons will get a chance to see it. Match number six, WWF Tag Team Champions Haystacks Calhoun and Tony Gurria defeated Mr. Fuji and Professor Toro Tanaka in a two out of three falls match. First fall, Tanaka pinned Gurria in 13 minutes, 12 seconds, with a kick to the midsection. Ooh, that even sounds painful. Fall number two, the challengers were disqualified for choking Haystacks. And fall number three, Haystacks pinned Tanaka with a splash. I don't know. I, I don't. I've never seen this tag team. I want to see video of this tag team. I like the whole idea of Haystacks and Tony Gurria. Yeah, and they were very popular. I mean, they were a very popular team, and Calhoun was always a big attraction. Literally, you know, he'd call everybody partner, and he'd come out. And he'd just, you know, lumber into the ring with the big horseshoe around his neck, and he wasn't mobile at all. So the only thing he could really do was stand up there, take the chokes, do a chop, and uh, a headlock, but never really got off his feet till the finish and that's when he would just splash them and it was horrible i mean but the thing about calhoun which i remember i mean he he did have an odd smell i mean he was it was not a 
you know, because I once I got my ringside passes and and especially in a tag team match and I was usually stationed near the corner. I mean, looking up and having him stand inches from you and, and looking at those callous filled feet because he never wore boots and also just kind of getting the whiff of uh, the sweat and the body odor uh, was not uh, pleasing to me. But uh, obviously he was an attraction. He was around for a long time. Uh, fans loved him. And he was a very popular guy, and him and Gurria together were, were very popular, very, very popular tag team. I've heard about this before in, in with the wrestlers. You know, you're traveling around a lot, and you don't get time to take care of your tights, a little hygiene problem here and there. But uh, Haystacks, he, he was, what, what did he wear? He wore overalls and a shirt. He wore a lot of stuff. That's it. That's it. Just kind of the overalls and a shirt underneath, a t-shirt or whatever, and, and that was it. Never wore boots. And he had a difficult time. He was so big and, you know, 600 pounds. Uh, that was probably close to being legitimate. He, he had to be over 500 for sure. And he was big. He was a tall guy uh, as well. But, um, you know, he would have been a good candidate for uh, my 600-pound life with Dr. Now. You ever watch that show? I, well, I was going to tell you, I was up for working on that show a couple of years ago. <laughs> So. Ah, you were working on. Did you meet Doctor Now? No, I was. Spo- I, I was up for working. If you on keep it. eating like that, you're going to die soon. <laughs> you got to put in the work. How how did this show last so long? I don't know, but uh, it's still on. It is still on. They still make TLC. It's one of the highest rating rated shows on TLC. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. My nephew had a fascination for it and still does. And and he was like, "You got to watch this, Uncle, with me." And I mean, it's 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 horrific. It is something to see. If you have, if you've never seen it, it's called the six hundred my six hundred pound life. Uh, they have a couple of spinoffs from it. I think post six hundred pounds or something like that. Or yeah, and I got my six hundred pound sister. My yeah. twelve hundred pound sisters or whatever it is they have all of these those shows are just horrific man not a fan not a fan uh let's go to the main event match number Please. seven wwwf world champion pedro morales pinned george Steele in 10 minutes 45 seconds with a guest referee joe lewis yeah joe lewis that was the attraction it was the main event it felt like a main event uh, it was a rematch from their last encounter and Lewis, you know, for being old as he was, he still looked good. It was a lot of action, only 10 minutes. Uh, but, you know, Steele knows how to rile the crowd up. And, of course, Lewis, Joe Lewis spent time, you know, trying to find his foreign object. And, you know, Steele would be taunting him. And Joe didn't want any of it. You know, you always want to see if there's a special guest referee like a boxer, a little action. And that's what happened. He didn't disappoint the fans. Uh, Steele went to punch the guest referee. He missed. Lewis took a few shots at Steele instead. That was after the match was over. But Pedro did win with that patented uh, flying body press off the top rope. One, two, three. The crowd goes wild. And another garden show is in the books. But a little about Joe. Uh, his real name was Joseph Lewis Barrow. And he was called the Brown Bomber. Uh, his professional boxing record. I mean, one of the real legends in the history of sports, not just boxing. He had uh, 66 wins over the course of his career. Three losses. 52 by knockout. Uh, he appeared at Madison Square Garden for the first time in 1935 with a four-round TKO over Paulino Uzaktum, and his record at the time was 23-0. Yankee Stadium became this almost like this mecca of huge boxing events, and Joe Lewis had 12 title defenses at Yankee Stadium, and he had 12 title defenses at Madison Square Garden. In 1946, over 40,000 fans 
went to Yankee Stadium to see one of the classic boxing matches of all time where Joe Lewis defeated Billy Kahn. Joe's purse for the evening was $600,000, which equates to $9 million in today's money. And out of that $600,000, Joe um, had to pay his managers 140k. Uh, he had to pay 66k to his ex-wife and 30,000 to the uh, state of New York for taxes. And that's not accounting for his own personal expenses. And Joe only fought twice in 1946, but you make all this money and it just goes out the window. So you can understand uh, why many boxers and even wrestlers, you know, wind up leaving their sports broke. Uh, His last match was at Madison Square Garden, 1951. And that was October 26th. And he lost to one of the other real legends of boxing as well. Rocky Marciano, eighth round TKO. And it ended his career at the final of 66 and three. And he was only 37 when he uh, when he left. Uh, he uh, also got involved in wrestling for a while. I mean, 1954, he had a boxer versus wrestler match, August the 6th. And he got a win over a guy named Bobby Nelson. And then uh, he went on to have a short-lived wrestling career in the uh, mid-50s, 1956. So he was kind of like a special attraction back then. His boxing career was over. But he, he'd still sell tickets uh, for people who wanted to see him as a wrestler. But his career was kind of cut short that year in 56 he broke his ribs in a match on may 31st 56 against cowboy rocky lee and then he lost his wrestling license and when he returned to wrestling to the wrestling ring wars in 1959 he lost to buddy rogers in columbus ohio and he actually had his last wrestling match in 1973, the age of 59. But then he continued on as a uh, referee. What's sad about this is this is considered one of the greatest boxers of all time. Everyone knows about Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson. But this is the prelude to him. He was the Babe Ruth of boxing. And we talk about it with wrestlers a lot, John. What's your exit plan? What do you plan on doing? Because making $600,000 at that time... It was it 46 you said? I think it was 46. That's so much money. That's more money than my grandmother, my grandparents ever saw in their lives. And then going from that, making that much money to having to referee to pay your bills. Right. That was the sad part of it for the guys who were in the business back then. Today, you know, if you're in the WWE or in AEW or, you know, you're making money and the guys are much smarter today. There's a lot of financial planning, and they're making enormous amounts of dough. But you still have, unfortunately, all these guys trying to break in on the indie circuit and these um, crazy matches that they do. I just saw a video with a guy who it looked like it was at the old ECW arena, and it was recent. But it was a guy that climbed up, and there was another guy on a table, and he stood up there, and he had to be... 15 at least 15 feet in the air and then he jumped off to give the guy an elbow and he missed the table and he landed on the concrete i mean what are you gonna do i mean so many guys get hurt and they're not making money there was really big problems with guys that were in the 80s and 90s because they didn't have the protections and the financial plans and the money wasn't like it is today so the vast majority of guys up until really the 2000s that's why you see wrestlers at all these conventions because they have to make money. Even though you were a big star, even in the 70s or 80s, you have to do the circuit and sell your autograph just to kind of make a living. Who are the wrestlers? We we can talk about all the wrestlers that made bad decisions with money. 
Who do you think made good decisions with money? Mick Foley for one. <laughs> yeah, and Mick Foley for one. I mean, but back in the back in the day, I mean, I don't hear very much. You know, guys like Bruno, of course, made a ton of money and he was secure. I can't give you a list of who was able to do better than others. I but mean, but like, like everyone... looking back, like let's look back to like maybe even to the nineties. Of I, I see demolition doing stuff, but I also see them talking about what they did with their money. They they always drove with Mr. Fuji. They ate at restaurants with Mr. Fuji. They they didn't hang around with the boys. They they were older. They were older guys at the time and they knew when you're older in a business and you've been through that young stage where you do those wild things, when you're coming back for another run, you know how to appreciate it. And I think that's what you're losing in like a Joe Lewis, going back to Joe Lewis, because once his career is over, what what are you going to do? You're not making that kind of money anymore. No one's paying $600,000 come see Joe Lewis be a referee. So you have to do more of the refereeing. And when you say I made 600000 and I had to give my ex-wife whatever, 130, yeah, whatever. It's only 130. I still have money left over. But when you don't get that payday anymore. When yeah. that payday is over. And you were talking earlier about these wrestlers that do these amazing flips and everything. When you miss once and you're on an indie, that could put you out of wrestling or that could put you all on the shelf for months or years to come. Yeah, it certainly can. It's a very dangerous business, uh, as we all know it is. And so many people have gotten hurt and injuries that ended careers. It's just, uh, you know, it's it's a horrific business. It doesn't have the protections of a union like other sports do, the pension plans, the health insurance, you know, all of that. It's still kind of considered a, a renegade business in a lot of ways. I saw something recently. Cody Rose is talking about his dad not having any money, Dusty, at the end. And that surprised yep. me because of all the years. He was from the 70s into the 80s into the 90s. He was still wrestling, you know. Um, it just amazes me how if you don't take care of yourself and watch out, you know, this yeah. could happen to you. If it can happen to these guys, it can happen to anybody. And it's the lifestyle. When you're on the road, you know, 300 days a year and you're in a car and you're going to hotels and you're eating out and you're going to the bar and you're buying, you know, new cars as money starts to come in, you don't you don't think that it will ever stop. You don't think the paydays will ever end. And then abruptly, and it's like almost everything else in life. If you're not smart financially, then you're going to be struggling, you know? So you don't look out for the future. You live in the present. And uh, sometimes the present ends and the money starts stops flowing. And, you know, you get into a bad situation that could carry you through the rest of your life. Uh, it's sad. It's sad. And I'm glad that things have been making changes uh, in the wrestling business and other businesses like that. Uh, let's go back, John, to this card. What do you think about it? It doesn't seem, it seemed like uh, the pop was Joe Lewis. Anything else yeah. on the card you like? Yeah. I mean, uh, other than that, you know, with Lewis, um, he did have a nice little run there with it. You know, the WWWF brought him in, not just for this show. I just want to make that point uh, because two days earlier, July 21st, he was at the Boston Garden and he was refereeing a match between Pedro Morales against Don Leo Jonathan. And he had like a 10 date run as a referee, which ended uh, July 30th of that year in Atlantic City, New Jersey, with Bruno San Martino working against George Steele in the Texas death match. So, yeah, so Lewis did uh, do a nice little run there for 10 days got a nice payoff uh and he probably got a really nice payoff for that main event uh, i would say that he probably got money uh in par with what morales and steel were getting uh for that main event but overall I, for me it was a two-match card it was the main event and it was blasty everything else was a throwaway so uh, i'm not going to give it a 
you know, a thumbs down or like it sucked because it had two really, for me personally as a fan, it had two really exciting things. And that was Blassie and also knowing that was the last time I was going to see him for a while. And then, of course, getting to see Joe Lewis because I'd heard so much about his legacy and he was a legend. It was very, very pleasing and very memorable for me. And I'm happy that I had uh, brought the 8mm camera there and took some footage. And we'll have that film up on Patreon. Yes, we will. Fantastic. Our next Garden Show is at the end of next month is our two-year anniversary August 27th 1973 headlined by Stan the Man Stasiak gets his shot at Pedro's title you look at it August 27th 73 and a few months after that Stasiak beats Morales to get the title on December 1st 73 in Philadelphia so uh, Stasiak is in for the run and before you know it, Stasiak beats Morales in uh, Philly. So Stasiak, what a great brawler. And we look forward to that uh, next episode here, Tim. Once again, we want to shout out Scott Teal and Crowbar Press and his book, Wrestling at the Garden. Yes, if you want to pick that up, crowbarpress.com, Wrestling in the Garden by Scott Teal and J. Michael Kenyon. It is the Bible uh, for any fan who's interested in the history of wrestling, Madison Square Garden, and it goes right from the 1800s, uh, and it goes right through, like, even the early 2000s. So what a great book. I would recommend it highly. Go to Crowbar Press to pick it up. And we always appreciate Richie Garcia for all the research that he does and uh, preparation for the show and of Tim always thanking you for all of your help. Oh, you're very welcome. And, and we have, we, we're working on a specialty show, uh, hoping to get Carrie back for a specialty show um, of wrestlers that have never wrestled at the Garden. Yes, that's going to be a good one. And uh, we're going to invite back uh, Carrie Silkin, uh, who did such a great job on the last episode, too. I mean, a couple episodes ago, it was, it was great to have him with us. It definitely was. Anything else, John, for today? No, man. It's uh, have a great rest of your uh, month. And, you know, we're going to be back together again at the end of August. Well, well, maybe I'll be we'll taping get... that one from probably New York because I'll be up there for a couple weeks. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll stay cool because I know the humidity is probably killing it out there. It's killing me out here in LA. It's crazy. It is crazy. For John Arizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time. <laughs>